2,000 years ago, the, the Holy Spirit breathed through a guy named Peter as he held a, a pen and paper in his hands. And the Spirit moved him to write these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to, to come into your presence. Lord, to, to gather in your name to celebrate you, to celebrate your grace, Father. To celebrate the fact that you indeed have overcome. And because of you, we can overcome in our lives. And, and God, I pray that you'll be with us as we study your word. I, I pray that what we do in this place today makes a difference in our relationships, God. I, I pray for those of us who may be in conflict right now, God, that our ears will be open, our eyes will be open, our hearts will be open. God, I pray you speak. I, I pray that, that you would enable me to, to speak your truth in a way that brings you honor and glory. Help me not to get in the way. And, and God, as always, just forgive me my many sins, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now up on the screen, uh, you see a couple of uh, corporate logos that I'm sure most of us recognize, Adidas and Puma. I mean, they're known across the country, literally all around the world, as manufacturers of athletic equipment. Many people have purchased their products and used them, but what most people don't know is the backstory behind these two companies, Adidas and Puma. And I gotta tell you, it's quite the backstory. Back in the 1920s, there were two brothers in Germany, Rudolf and Adi Dassler who began handcrafting running shoes. In the 1920s, running shoes was not something uh, most people had or even really wanted. Uh, but these two brothers really believed in their product, so they took their shoes to the Olympic Games that were held in Germany in 1936. You know, the games that Hitler uh, was using to display the superiority of the German people in the Aryan race. And while there, they, they met a guy by the name of Jesse Owens. Maybe you recognize that name from... American history or Olympic history. Well, they convinced Jesse Owens to wear a pair of their running shoes in the Olympic Games. And as you know, Owens, he, he didn't win just one gold medal. He, he won four gold medals, and which, by the way, really ticked off Hitler, right? It did, kind of showed him up. And the Dassler brothers became an instant sensation. I mean, orders began coming in from all around the world. And in short order, they became very wealthy men. But eventually, that wealth began to affect their relationship. As a matter of fact, the two brothers and the two wives began to not get along, and this com conflict continued to escalate until 1948 when the brothers decided to split the company in two, uh, split both the assets and the employees between each other. AD, Adi named his company Adidas, which is a combination of the first three letters of his first name and the first three letters of his last name. Rudolph attempted to do the same thing. He named this company um, Ruda, and, but eventually said he didn't really like the way that sounded. And 
He said, I'll, I'll choose the more athletic term, puma, which is a German word for cougar. And so the two Dashler brothers each built a factory on one side of the river and the other side of the river that, that divided the small German town. And very quickly, these two brothers became responsible for much of the economy in that town, with nearly everybody working for one company or the other. Now, now unfortunately, as all unresolved conflict usually goes, the feud between these two brothers was not contained within the family, it, but instead it spread like a cancer infecting the entire town as nearly everyone got caught up in the Dash, Dashler family feud. And a feud that reached ridiculous proportions. I mean, there were local um, businesses that would only serve you if you worked for Adidas. And others that would only serve you if you worked for Puma. And it was totally forbidding to date or marry outside of your present company. The town became known as the town of, of the bent necks because before you would ever talk to anybody, you would look down to see what kind of shoes they were wearing to determine whether you would have a conversation with them. And after these two brothers split in 1948, they never spoke to each other again for the rest of earthly lives. In fact, even in their death, they made plans. We want to be buried on the exact opposite ends of the cemetery. They wanted nothing to do with each other at all. And that's the backstory of Adidas and Puma. Uh, question, what could have happened if these two brothers would have learned how to work through conflict? I mean, what could they have accomplished together? Now, it's true that, that Puma dominates the, the soccer shoe market or football, as most of the world would call it, market, which I'm getting hooked on the World Cup, first time ever. Crazy stuff, man. Howard, what a goalie, man. 15 saves. That was pretty awesome. And it's also true that, that Adidas is the number one provider of athletic equipment in Europe and number two worldwide. I mean, Adidas is only second to this guy, Nike, which you probably heard of. But you have to wonder, what, what if these brothers had learned how to work through and get past their conflict and forgive each other? I mean, maybe Nike would be chasing them. And just in case they did this, I actually came up with my own name for their company. You know, you got, you got, you got Rudolph's first two letters, and you got, you know, Rude, Rude how would you say that? Rude, die. And you think, that's uncomfortable. What's up with Adidas if you didn't know it, right? And I even came up with the symbol for them, but... Okay, I'll keep my day job, all right? That, if they'll let me. Maple Grove, would you agree with me that conflict can get pretty ugly at times? And would you agree that our world is not doing so good with this conflict thing? I mean, look at our own country. Look at, our, look at Washington. I don't care whether you're a Republican or Democrat. What a bunch of two-year-olds, right? I mean, come on. Come on, get along. Let's make this work. And wouldn't you agree that if we as believers had less conflict, and if we handled a conflict differently, that the world would notice? Since April 27th, we've been studying uh, the letter of 1 Peter, a letter that's jam-packed with God's truth. And since June the 1st, we've been looking at a specific part of 1 Peter uh, that revolves around this verse, 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Uh, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, uh, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, I understand what, what Peter is telling us exiles who are on a mission for Christ in a world that is not our home is that somebody, is that the unbelieving world is watching us and, and, and since they are watching us and will always watching us, we need to both see it and seize it as an opportunity to influence them to believe in God, to accept his message, to surrender his son, to receive his forgiveness and to embrace and live and experience the life they were created to live. Live such good lives 
among the pagans that though they want to accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds, they will see your good lives and glorify God on the day he visits us. And, and during the last several weeks, Peter has told us three very practical things we can do, right? Yeah. Things that will make our salt saltier, we are salt of the earth. Things that will make our light burn brighter, we are the light of the world. He says, here's how you do it. Number one, he says, by, by, by dealing with sin and temptation differently. Basically by sinning less than the world does, right? Not being sinless, but, wow, it's obvious these people sin less than we do. No, number two, our, our, our lights will burn brighter by, when we submit and show respect to those who have authority over us, Right? And we live in an anti-authority world, and when we show respect and submission, our light shines brighter. And third, by following God's design for our marriages. The last two weeks, we talked about what Peter said about wives and what Peter said about husbands, what our role is, what God's design for us is in that. And this week, Peter's going to say, hey, if you want your light to burn brighter, you want your salt to be saltier, here's the way you do it. You do it by dealing with conflict in a God-honoring way. Finally, all of you, Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love his life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. During the final week of Jesus' ministry, we read it this week, and our faith comes from hearing a, a guy came up to Jesus, and he asked him, Jesus, what, what, what really matters? Jesus, what's the most important thing in life? And Jesus said, okay, here it is. Here's what really matters. Jesus said, here is the cliff notes for the entire Bible. Here, here's the cliff notes for all the law and the prophets. Here's the cliff notes for life. Love God and love other people. That's it. Love God with all you got, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, what Jesus is saying is that life, all of life is about one thing, relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Understand, life is not about achievement. <clears throat> life is not about getting more stuff. Life is not about parties, good times, and pleasure. No, real life is about relationships. And if we miss that, church, we miss the entire point of life. And listen, one of the things that gets in the way of relationships working is this, this word conflict. This, you see, conflict, it's not just like a bomb. Conflict, it is a bomb. And when the conflict bomb goes off, it can get pretty ugly in a hurry. Now, question, what would, be a, what would be a better skill to have? Okay, better skill. Uh, the skill of cleaning up and digging through rubble and debris once a bomb goes off. Okay, that's one skill. Or the skill of being able to defuse a bomb so it does not go off to begin with. The answer is obvious, right? I mean, cleanup is a lot more costly. It takes a lot more time. And the truth is, sometimes no matter how much we pay and how long we work, things never really do get back to the place they were before the bomb went off. But hey, Peter's got good news. Peter says, in the verses we're going to unpack today, he says, here are seven attitudes that from God's word, so they got to be true. 
that if you put these into your life, it will defuse the conflict bomb before it goes off. But before we talk about those seven attitudes, I want to call your attention to something on the stage and something in the Word. Okay, I have something on the stage here. Does anybody know what this is? See, I knew I had the smartest, highest IQ church in Central Virginia. Okay, okay, now something in the Word. James writes, "Um, but don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the Word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for, for what? For doing it. And this mirror's up here for two reasons. And number one, it's, see, God brought me here and he brought you here so that we would look into the mirror and, and hear what God says and then walk away and act on it, Right? Not just audit. We're going to hear God's word. You know, like I said, you look in the mirror. You, you, if you saw, who looked in the mirror today? Most of us did, right? You know, if you had toothpaste on your mouth, if you had a, a piece of garlic or something stuck in your teeth from last night, you probably, you know, grabbed some floss, boom, popped it on the mirror or something, right? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so you, you, he wants us to act on it. The second reason this is up here is because when you look in the mirror, who do you see? You see you. And see, God brought you here so that you could change the only person you could change, and that's the face you see when you look in the mirror. See, the tendency any time we hear God's word is, I am going to get a copy of this sermon for this. I hope they're taking notes. If not, I'm going to take them for them. <laughs> see, see, did you hear what he just said? Hear what God just said? You know, God wants us today to say, hey, look, honestly, in the mirror, say, God, what do I need to change, God? What are you telling me to do differently in my life that will defuse the conflict bomb. Get it? Good. First attitude that will help defuse conflict is work. Peter writes these seven words in our text. Uh, verse 11, he must seek peace and pursue it. The NIV and NLT words it this way. Work hard at living in peace with others. Seek, pursue, work hard. Now, now, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything new, but here it goes anyway. Relationships take work. They take work. I understand, anytime we see a good, strong, healthy relationship, we can be sure that it didn't just happen. But instead, those involved, they sought after it, they pursued it, they worked hard for it. Now, this coming January, Laurie and I will be married for 18 years, and I believe we got a good relationship, and I think it's getting healthier all the time. But if you were to ask either one of us, you know, we would tell you that it didn't just happen, right? Instead, we had to work for it. We had to pursue it. Uh, uh, we had to seek this relationship, and we still do. And now the word that's translated seek in verse 11, it's a Greek word that means to look for intently, to strive to obtain, to desire to possess. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 15, of the woman who swept the floor looking for her lost coin. It's the, it's the same word that's used of Jesus in, in, in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus said, I, the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, when, when God's talking to his people and he said, hey, you know what? In the future, he, you're going to worship idols and, and I'm going to punish you. 
but because you worship idols. And then God says this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 29. I like this because sometimes we do stupid stuff. But if from there, if from this place of seeking something other than God, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you'll find him. If you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Uh, this word for seek is the same word used in Isaiah 41 of, of thirsty people seeking water. And I'm kind of thirsty right now. I'm seeking some water right out of this cup. Water is so good, isn't it? That is really good. Really good. Taste of chlorine, but still good. <laughs> and, and this word for seek is the same word that's used in Exodus 15 for when the Egyptians sought after the Israelites after they were delivered. It, it's the same word that, that uh, Paul uses to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 saying that, that, that we as Jesus followers are to pursue to seek after righteousness. You see, you and I, we're to seek after, we're to work hard for our relationships, for healthy relationships, like a woman looking for a lost coin, like, like Jesus looking for lost people, like thirsty people searching for water, like repented people longing for restoration, like an army pursuing its enemy, like Jesus' followers pursuing righteousness. One attitude that will diffuse conflict is, is work. And so, you know, it, it, it's mirror time, not Miller time, it's mirror time. You know, you know, how are you doing, right? You know, on, on a scale of one to five, how, how are you doing? You know, are, are you working hard? Are, are you pursuing this relationship and relational health? You know, if so, give yourself a five. If you're like sipping an iced tea and hoping things will just work out, maybe you should give yourself a one. A second attitude that will help diffuse conflict is sympathy. Peter writes in verse eight, be sympathetic. And to be sympathetic means to understand, validate, or affirm someone's feelings. And when we do that, we're meeting two basic human needs. Number one, the need to be understood. You see, we all have this need, don't we, for somebody to get us, uh, for somebody to, to see where we're coming from, for someone to understand us. Uh, number two, it, it meets the need to feel like our feelings are okay. Because a lot of times when we're feeling a certain way. We begin to wonder, am I weird, right? Am I, am I just messed up, right? And, and I, I think this way sometimes, and I refuse to think that you don't think this way because I'm messed up and you're messed up, right? I, I'm a messed up pastor and a church full of messed up people. If you're visiting here, we know you're messed up already. Let's get everything on the table, and we're good, right? I mean, God will help us get unmessed upness, right, a little bit, okay? But, you know, we're, we're wondering, you know, am I weird? Am I crazy? Has anybody ever felt this way before? Is it just me? And we find someone who's sympathetic, who not only says, I understand, but who says, I get it. I, I see where you're coming from. I understand why you feel the way you do. It's very liberating and freeing. So, so how do we become more sympathetic? Answer, by using our ears more than we use our mouth. Because we got two ears and we got one mouth. Imagine if we had two mouths. Would that be like freaky? We're like, would that be like, I don't know. It'd be crazy. I'm glad God worked it out the way he did. Uh, but we learn by listening. You see, listening says what? It says, I care about you. And I know it's a cliche, but it doesn't mean it's not true, right? People don't care what you know until what? Until they know that you care, that you really care about them. James put it this way, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And let me tell you, if we do the first two, the third one's automatic, right? If we, we're quick to listen, we're slow to speak, we're going to be slow to become angry. But the problem is we're always in such a hurry, right? 
We're in such a hurry to speak. We're in such a hurry, right, to get our point across, right, to get our own opinion out there. We're in such a hurry for them to understand us that we completely miss what other people are saying. Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Successful People. And one of the habits, habit number five, is this. Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. You see, it's, it's a lot easier for us to be more sympathetic and understanding when we know why people do what they do, when we know where they've been, when we know what they've been through, when we know what roads they had to travel, when we, knew, we know what roads and what storms they had to go through, and what, what things are going through right now. Does that make sense? You see, one of the reasons we have conflict so much confidence because we give so little thought or weight to where people are coming from. And as a result, we don't understand what they're really saying because everything people are saying comes with history, right? It comes with past history and present history, and it affects how they feel. And sympathy is just saying, I affirm your feelings. I understand that. Now, I may not feel the same way, but we don't belittle. And we don't ridicule their feelings, their grief, their emotions, doubts, or their fears. Again, it's mirror time, right? It's mirror time. One to five. One, five. One, five. How would you rate yourself on sympathy and understanding? How would your spouse or your parents or your kids or your friends rate you on sympathy and understanding? If they say, hey, they're always listening, you know, you know uh, always listening to me, you know. They're always trying to understand where I'm coming from. You know, give yourself a five. If it's like, hey, I don't know if they're ever listening or ever trying to see what I'm, where I'm coming from, then give yourself a lower number. Next, Peter says that a fused conflict is loyalty. He says, love as brothers. And I'm saying, when we love as brothers, we are committed to a relationship. We act like we are on the same team, that we're in the same family, that we're in this thing together. And we love as brothers. We don't compete with each other. Instead, we complement and cooperate with each other. See, loyalty is a huge ingredient in reducing conflict relationships. You know why? Because when we get angry with someone, it's very easy to start focusing on the problem, right, and forget the value of the relationship. And pretty soon we start thinking and seeing them that they're the enemy. You ever done that? But listen, they're not the enemy. In fact, you love them. You may be married to them, right? They're a friend. They're a parent. They're a coworker. You're on the same team. Understand, loyalty says let's stop attacking each other and let's start attacking the problem. Romans 12.10, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted. Doesn't mean we agree on everything. Simply means that we're loyal. For example, if you had brothers and sisters growing up, you you probably fought like cats and dogs, right? Uh, but what if somebody outside the family picked on them, right? Another story. I mean, you could literally beat the snot out of them, right? Right, which is kind of a gross picture, right? You know, okay, it's almost all out. One more hit. Okay, now the snot's out. Okay, you you, you, you could literally beat the snot out of them. But if somebody else, right? You're going to come to their defense. See, that's family. That's loyalty. That's loving as brothers. Bottom line, loyalty is just another word for commitment. Loyalty says, you know what, I may, I may differ with you. I may be irritated with you. I may be ticked off and angry with you. I may totally disagree with you. But let there be no mistake 
to you, may you not, may you, but may you never forget. <laughs> may I say it right? I are a communicator. May you never forget that I am committed to you, to this relationship, that we're on the same team, and that I am not going anywhere. Back in January 1997, when Laurie and I got married, we, we welded shut the escape hatch. They're on submarines and useless, because you, if you ever had to use them, you couldn't all get out anyhow. But anyhow, yeah, you know, and, and what we said was, we said, you know, divorce is not an option. It's not an option. We're going to work through this. Now, every now and then, we probably, I think murder came into our minds, right? Well, you know, not divorce. You know, I may murder you, but I'm not going to divorce you, right? Hey. Amen. That was a little comic relief, hopefully. <laughs> I'll show you comic relief. Okay, uh, Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. Proverbs 26, many will say they're loyal friends, but who can we find who is truly reliable? Yeah, yeah, it's mirror time. You know, the people that we love and that relationship with, do they know that, you know, we're on their team, yeah. that we're in their corner, yeah. that we have their backs, that we are not going anywhere? Give yourself a five. If people really aren't sure you're going to be there, if they're not sure if you're really for them, then maybe it shouldn't be so high. The next attitude that will diffuse conflict, and this stuff works because it's God's word, is compassion. Peter says, be compassionate. And the Greek word here for compassion is a word I've always liked, splagna, okay? It comes from the, it refers to our bowels and our intestines, right? That's really gross. Splagna, okay? Gross. Gross. Splagna. <laughs> but it's also pretty accurate, right? I, I mean, <laughs> okay? Splagna and snot, we got a problem here, right? <laughs> uh, have you ever felt so strong about what someone was going through that it just stirred your insides? I mean, you could talk to some of the Cambodia team, right? Stirred insides. Or, or you know, I'm looking at a brother right now who's got a mother-in-law going through hard times. And you know what? You're feeling it, right? You're feeling it in your gut. And when someone you love is going through a hard time, it, 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 you feel it in your gut. And this term is used of Jesus all the time. Mark 14, 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And Mark uh, chapter 1, Jesus meets this leper, and this leper is like, hey, I know you, like, you're God and you can heal me, but I know I'm pretty nasty and no one likes me, no one wants to be around me, no one's touched me for years, and I know you could, but you, you, you now you probably don't want anyhow, but, but, but if you're willing, would you? And Jesus says, filled with compassion. He's like, man, you, don't, you think you could ever be messy enough that I would have wouldn't heal you? I'm willing, he said, be cleaned. In Mark 6, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Is that what we see when we see our messed up world and all their crazy morals? You know, we're like, you know, we have compassion or judgment. We have compassion like, man, if... They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're going down wrong things that could hurt them because they don't know any better. There's no one guiding them that loves them and cares about them. And you notice in all those verses that, that 
that compassion is more than a feeling, that, 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 that Jesus' feelings always led to action. See, if sympathy is understanding someone's feeling, compassion is taking the next step and doing something about it. it it's taking action. It's, what can I do to help you? And, and listen, compassion shows up. You know, we show compassion in relationships by two things. Number one, by, by, by what we say to other people. Ephesians 4.29, speak what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. You know, as you look at that passage and as you consider the words that, 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 as we consider the words we spoke the last week or two, is, would that describe our words? That, that our words build people up, that, that our words make other people feel good and encourage, that, 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 our, that our words put fuel in people's tank, or did they kind of drain the tank? One way we show compassion is by what we said. The other is by what we do. John put it this way, my children, we should love people not only with words and talk, but with actions and true caring. Compassion is saying with action, I'm coming alongside you. How can can I make your life easier? What can I do to make your life run smoother? I mean, when someone we love is going through a hard time, a difficult time, they're beaten down, they're beaten up, do our insides turn? And are we moved to compassion? Are we moved to compassion? Again, it's mirror time. How how are we doing with this compassion thing? And, and, And I want you to know that as a church, we want to do, we're trying to do good at compassion, right? You know, uh, we roll out our three-year strategic plan in October, October the 5th, and, and we have people meeting, teams meeting. They've been meeting, yeah, I don't know, maybe seven, eight times each already. We have an evangelism team, a discipleship team, and a compassion team. You know, compassion is meeting. We say, hey, we don't want to just talk about compassion as a church. God, how do we live it out? What's our plan to live it out in our community because we don't want to be just about talk. We want to show the compassion of Jesus in our world. So be praying for these teams. You, you may not seeing them, but they're meeting all the time, figuring out how, how can we actually accomplish our goal of seeking the lost, making disciples, and showing compassion. The next thing Peter says that will help defuse the conflict bomb is humility. Peter writes, be humble. God says a lot about humility. It says, Scripture says, the Lord guides the humble in what is right. Psalm 147, the Lord supports the humble. I like Isaiah 62 too. The people I treasure most are the humble. Uh, Matthew 23, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble. You know, and, and you know, I think humility sometimes is really misunderstood. And, and sometimes so to understand it, we have to understand what humility is not. And humility, it's not shyness. It's not being timid. Humility is not being weak. It's not being spineless. Being humble is not having a lack of confidence. It's not being insecure. It's definitely not having a low opinion of herself. Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived, yet he had a very high opinion of himself. So what is humility? It's thinking of others instead of ourselves. And to me, humility is simply this, self-forgetfulness. We just forget about ourselves. We think of others. And see, humility allows us to do several things that really help to defuse the conflict bomb. Number one, humility allows us to say, I need help. And that's pretty hard in our culture to say, to admit to someone that, you know what, I need help. Man, I'm going through a rough time, and I'm not going to make it on my own. Yet, Yet the Bible says that we're to bear each other's burdens, but how can you bear my burdens if I don't tell you? And how, how can I bear yours if you don't tell me? 
Because if you don't tell me and I don't tell you, we're not going to know, hey, the reason why Steve is so cranky right now, that the reason why, you know, he is so down and short and critical right now is, man, he's going through a hard time. You know, when we say I need help, we know where people are coming from. Number two, humility allows us to say I was wrong. That can be tough to say. For us old-timers, it can be like that, uh, I always date myself, you know, you know Fonzie, right? Happy days. I was, I was, he couldn't say it. I was, I was wrong. YouTube it, it's out there, trust me. It's on YouTube, you can see I'm trying to say it. All right, I know I'm dating myself, but all right. No one else would date me, no kidding. <laughs> it can be hard to say, right, that you're wrong. Anyone who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. Bottom line, if we always have to be right, we will always be in conflict. Humility also allows us to give up our rights. Your attitude should be the same that Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his righteous God. He made himself nothing. He he took the humble position of a slave. Here, here, Here are a few ways we can give up our rights. Real quick. Allow someone else to get the credit. That can be hard, right? You ever been somewhere, you, exactly your idea, and someone actually got the credit for it other than you? You're thinking, how can I let people know that it was really my idea? Um, oh, yeah, it is a good idea. And I was talking to Bob the other day about that very thing, you know? No, let them have the credit. Number two, let someone else be right. And go with their idea and something that's really not hugely important. Number three, let someone else go first. First in line, first in conversations, first in, in sharing ideas. Number four, do, do more listening than talking. Let other people out there say, don't interrupt so much. Right? Uh, number four, humility allows us to learn from others. It's teachability. Being willing to change our course if necessary. You, you know, the Bible says this, an intelligent person is always eager to take in more truth. See, humble people are always learning. They're like, I didn't know that. Are you kidding me? Are, are you, are, you're telling me that, that if I put in some work, some sympathy, some compassion, some humility, if I put this in my relationship, that my relationships are going to have less conflict? I didn't know that. My golly, I think I'll do it, right? Humility, they're always learning. Do you think, humility, do you think that asking for help, being able to say I was wrong, you know, be, being willing to give up your rights, do you think that, that learning from other people would help diffuse conflict? Absolutely. It's mirror time, right? How you doing? How are we doing that Humility. The next attitude that will help diffuse conflict is what I call mouth management, right? <laughs> we, we need some more mouth managers, don't we? Uh, Peter said this. I mean, is God's word crazy or what? I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. It's Holy Spirit-inspired truth. Whoever would love his life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. I mean, would you agree? You know, okay, raise your hand if your mouth and your words ever got you in trouble. Raise your hand. <laughs> Some of you are in trouble right now, right, this week. You know, in, in today's world of technology, right, it's not just our speech, right? It can be a text. It can be you decide, I'm, I'm going to post that on their Facebook wall. You know, let them know what they did to me, right? It, it, it can be tweets, whatever. And here's what the Bible says about our, our tongue and our words. Proverbs 12, reckless words pierce like a sword. Proverbs 15, 4, a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. We read this next one uh, this week. 
Watch your tongue. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> You'll stay out of trouble. That's a good one, right? Some of you, right? Some of us, God said, this is why you came. Why did I come here today? Because God said, keep your mouth shut. You'll stay out of trouble. James said it like this. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Think about your speech. Think about your mouth management. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. Amazing grace. I hear it singing over me. And with it, we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursings. My brothers, this should not be. Yeah, we all know the rhyme, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, names will never hurt me. That's cute, but it's a lie, right? Break a bone, it's going to heal eventually, right? A couple months. Yeah. But some words that were spoken by us or to us 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, and it still hasn't healed. You see, our words are powerful. You know, uh, they have the power to, to build up or tear down, to encourage or discourage, to delight or to destroy. And, and here's some quick advice for managing our mouth better from God's word. Number one, God would say, Shut up and listen. Now, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Number two, speak positive words. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Doesn't it? Man, it can, you know, you speak a harsh word to me, I speak a harsh word, but it gets, it gets crazy in a hurry. Message words, message paraphrase words it this way. A gentle response diffuses anger. But a sharp tongue kindles a temper fire. So we, keep, we shut up and listen. We speak positive words. We ask God for help every day. I love Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth. Right? It's like, God, God you know what, God? I need your help every day, God. Because, yeah, man, if I'm not careful, I'm going to say something. You know, I'm going I'm to say something. I'm going to hurt someone. So God, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips so no junk comes out that's going to hurt somebody. No man can tame the tongue, but God can. And again, you know, how are we doing at you know, mirror time? How are we doing at mouth management, right? And now for the final all-important attitude for diffusing conflict, forgiveness. Peter writes, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. And in that verse, I see two things. I see three things, actually. Um, mercy, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. That's mercy. Don't give people what they deserve. I also see grace. Repay evil with blessing. Mercy plus grace equals forgiveness. John Ortberg writes in that great book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Great book about relationships. Here's what John writes. God created human beings in his image so they can be friends, intimate, love-filled companions with him and one another. But soon they learned to live as enemies to all the wonders that God created human beings at an invention of their own, revenge. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. A kind of Newtonian law becomes inevitable as the law of gravity. For every infliction of pain, there must be an equal and opposite act of vengeance. A character in the book of Genesis named Lamech takes this concept to its ultimate extreme. 
He kills a man for wounding him. And then he says the following to his wives. I think maybe to keep them in line. Here's what he says. Listen to me, my wives. I've killed a youth who attacked and wounded me. Anyone who takes revenge against me will be punished 77 times. This is the law of Lemek. You hurt me, I will hurt you more. And we all know that does not work in a relationship, does it? Understand, people are going to hurt you. They're going to. And if we choose to deal with hurt the Lemek way, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. It will get real ugly real fast. The fallout and collateral damage will be severe. And the cleanup will take a long time and things may never get back to the way that they were. You know, the law of Lemek does not work. However, Jesus introduced a new law into relationships. A law that, that, that counters the law of Lemek. It's in Matthew 18. Remember, Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable of the unforgiven servant, right? This guy's forgiving a huge debt, pleads and begs, I can't pay it. He's forgiven the debt, and he goes out and doesn't forgive someone who owes him a dollar twenty-two. You know, and, and that person who had forgiven the huge debt is me and you, our sins, and then we don't forgive other people, like totally ticks God off, like in a major way. And after that parable, we read, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You know, the, the rabbis said, forgive three times. Peter said, you know what, I'm going to double that and add one. And Jesus, I'm ready for my gold star. Put it right here, Jesus. Jesus answered, I tell you, Golemic was, you hurt me, I, I punish you 77 times more. Jesus, I tell you, not seven times, but what? Seventy seven times. And again, he's not saying, just wait, be patient, because one day they're going to get to 78. <laughs> Boom! He's not saying that, right? He's not saying that. He's saying there's two ways to deal with hurt, the way of vengeance or the way of forgiveness. One way leads to life, the other way leads to death. Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but with Blessing. Paper Grove, we are the light of the world. We are the soul of the earth. The unbelieving world is watching us. And when we put these seven attitudes into our, into our relationships, work and sympathy and loyalty, compassion, humility, mouth management, and forgiveness, we will, we will have less conflict. We will. You know? And our conflict, when we do have it, won't be as ugly as it has been. And our lights will burn brighter, and our salt will be saltier, and God will be honored, and God will get praise. And, and, and don't miss the awesome truth. At, at, right at the end of, of this section of Scripture, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, because God has a great promise for those who say, you know what, I'm going to with great passion try to diffuse the conflict in my relationships. God says what? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And those who are trying to get this right are trying to diffuse conflict, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. You know, the story of Adidas and Puma actually hadn't, it didn't end with the division. Actually, in, on September the 18th, 2009, a headline in the BBC News 
read, match ends Adidas and Puma, Puma feud. The German sportswear companies, it says, have ended a 60-year feud that started years ago by their founding fathers. You see, what happened on September the 18th, 2009, is they said, you know what? This feud has gone on for 60 years. It's divided our company. It's divided our entire town. It needs to end now. It needs to end today. And it was a day they were celebrating an organization called Peace One Day. And what they had, they had, they had a soccer game, right? They had a football game. And, and, and the way they divided the teams, you had on one team you had people from Puma and people from Adidas. The other team you had people from Adidas and people from Puma. And one team won seven to five, but it didn't matter because both teams won. And they said, we have officially ended this ridiculous feud and we have forgiven each other. And it's the first thing those companies had done together in over 60 years. And the town decided that this is a better way to go. Conflict. How we handle it makes a difference. And, and, and yet we're here today, you know, to give honor, praise, and, and glory to the greatest bomb diffuser of all time, right? Jesus. You know, there was like a huge issue between us and God. And, and we couldn't do anything about it. You know, and 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ went to a cross died a cruel death, was buried and rose again, and he completely defused that bomb, a bomb that separated us from God, a bomb that if that bomb was allowed to go off you know, at his return or our death would not have been good, right? It would have been separation from God forever. You know? and, and, and so as, as we get ready to sing our, our last song, you know, I, I'd be really crazy not to talk about, you know, if you're here this morning and, and you you know, you haven't dealt with this bomb between you and God, this issue that, that God is holy and you have sin, but he, Jesus has already diffused the bomb. I, I want to let you know how you get in on the deal that God made with himself on the cross. And as you read the New Testament, you see people hearing about, are you, like, are you kidding me? Like, I got this, that, and like, Jesus died for it? Absolutely, it's true. And the New Testament, we see people heard that and they believed it. And they said, you know what? I need to repent. I need to stop living for me, stop going my own way and going God's way. And they repented. And they, were, and they confessed, you know what? I'm willing to say that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And, and, and then we see throughout the page of the New Testament, it didn't end there. Then, then everyone in the New Testament, we see that, that they were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. Buried with Christ, and they rose to live a new life. Just like Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 30, 38, when people heard the gospel for the first time and said, what do we do, man? What do we do with this conflict between us and God? I don't know how to defuse it. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I, I know that you know, we have um, one of Sylvia's students is going to be um, baptized shortly in the service. But if you're here today and you want to talk about that with me afterwards or you're like ready to surrender to Christ today, you know, you can do that. And Scripture says now is the day of salvation. There's no need to wait. The bomb has been diffused by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And God, we're in all of you. And God, help us to trust you and to trust your word. God, I know every one of us in this room have 
had conflict with you, and some maybe are still fighting with you. And God, we have conflict with each other, and, and God, it's not fun. We, we don't enjoy it, but it happens, and it hurts, and it's painful. And God, your word is true. Your word is right. And through your servant, Peter, you breathe these words on paper 2,000 years ago that says, hey, if you want things to be better, if you want there to be harmony, here's what you put into your relationships. And God, give us faith to trust you, to trust what you say and to, to live out what you say and to experience incredible blessings of following you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.